KZSU FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Information and Society at Stanford Law School, and a fellow at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Uh, today, after uh, taking about a month or so, maybe even closer to two, uh, off this summer to uh, actually teach employment discrimination law, which I, I'm actually going to be working into the show in the coming year, um, and to uh, spend time with family. I am back uh, with the uh, pre-fall schedule uh, for Hearsay Culture, and I'm very excited today to kind of launch the fall, as it were, uh, with Professor Shannon Valor of Santa Clara University, author of the uh, soon-to-be-released on September 9th when the show airs book, Technology and the Virtues. Uh, this is a an incredible work and one that I mentioned to Sh Shannon normally um, I can work through a book and kind of see uh, what I consider to be the best topics for radio there are so many interesting uh, threads to go down in this book that it actually took me a little more time to work through it uh, because I think that this book is making a, a very much needed and unique contribution uh, to at a particularly good time uh, to our understanding of how we might think about integrating new technologies in society not not the question not the nuts and bolts of how to use apps or when they should come out but really what should be the framework that human beings should use to make decisions about how those technologies should be used and what those technologies should do and shouldn't do and how we should view their potential um, and so in technology and the virtues the subtitle of the book uh, which which says a lot also is a philosophical guide to a future worth wanting. And so this is a book that fuses the technology focus of hearsay culture and ethics and philosophy, which is a topic that we have covered uh, from time to time in the 10 plus years of hearsay culture. But today it's going to be a deep dive into it. Uh, Shannon's book, which uh, is being published by Oxford University Press, uh, begins by noting some of these broad principles um, and then gets into and particularly useful for folks like me that were not philosophy majors in undergrad gets into some of the core uh, philosophers of the last you know, last millennia, multiple millennia, uh, Confucius uh, and Aristotle and others, to think about what those ethics are before kind of running through a set of principles um, that one may consider uh, in integrating this tech. And again, we're thinking about the technologies that are increasingly a focus on hearsay culture, artificial intelligence and robotics and autonomous drivers uh, and driving cars uh, and the like. Uh, throughout the book, uh, which is well-researched and well-annotated, and it's always a compliment to my authors, at least as far as I'm concerned, uh, when I'm dog-earing books, not only for the radio show, uh, but for my own edification uh, and work. Uh, Shannon uh, refers to a, a litany of scholars, uh, both uh, current and former, uh, and integrates uh, thinkers that we've talked about on Hearsay Culture, from uh, Woody Hartzog and Evan Selinger to uh, Frank Pasquale uh, and other uh, and it comes up with, I think, uh, like I said, a very 
uh, useful way uh, for uh, human beings to be much more thoughtful about how we use technology and what our relationship is with them. Um, the book, and I'll ask Shannon this, I, we oftentimes will read books in this space that are either pro-technology or anti-technology or have a normative position that says something is good or bad, and I don't think uh, we see a lot of that in Shannon's book, and I want to ask her about that, but I do think the book uh, definitely has a perspective that uh, there is a way to do uh, this that can work well, and if we fail to go uh, in a direction of thoughtful integration, and as we'll talk about uh, in the book, techno-normal virtues, as Shannon defines them, uh, we could wind up having some of the, potentially some of those dystopian nightmare scenarios that have been uh, the focus of other uh, commentators. So, it's a terrific book, uh, and I'm looking forward to chatting with Shannon here by way of very brief background. Uh, Shannon is the William J. Rewak uh, Professor in the Department of Philosophy at Santa Clara. Uh, she's also President of the Society for Philosophy and Technology as well as an Executive Board Member for the new Foundation for Responsible Robotics. Uh, Peter Asaro is involved with that organization as I'm advised and Peter's been on the show previously. Uh, Shannon uh, is joining us via Skype uh, from uh, California. Uh, we are recording the show on August 29th 2016 for airing uh, on September 9th, 2016. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today on Hearsay Culture. Happy to be here, and thanks thanks a lot, Dave, for inviting me and uh, for giving such a close reading to the book, and I'm glad, I'm glad it was worthwhile. Yes, I, I, I enjoyed it tremendously as I enjoy you know, reading books on the show, but like I said, there's a lot here, so we can dive right in. Um, let, let's start off with a question I ask virtually all of my guests. Tell us a bit more about your background and why you wrote this book, and I think particular to your book, why now? Sure. So I started my teaching career as a philosopher of science. I was always interested in the social and ethical dimensions of scientific practice, as well as the uh, traditional kind of logical preoccupations that philosophers of science have about scientific method and so forth. Um, and I was always interested as well in the way that scientific inquiry was intertwined with scientific instruments and other technologies of experimentation. So as a philosopher of science, I was already interested in technology. I was already interested in normative questions about ethics and uh, ideal scientific practice. Um, so the philosophy of technology was a natural extension of that. And so in 2006, there was a course uh, on the books at Santa Clara called Science, Technology, and Society that had been taught by uh, a former instructor who was no longer with us. And I asked my department chair at the time, Elizabeth Radcliffe, if I could revive that course and, and, and redesign it from scratch. She was happy to have me do that. So I, I designed the course essentially as a course in the philosophy of technology uh, with some uh, special emphasis on ethical questions. And when I taught it the first time, I had no idea how enthusiastic the student response would be. I found out very quickly that my students were desperate to talk about the topics that we were covering in this course. They were desperate to talk about the social and ethical implications of Facebook and Twitter and other new social media that were already changing the way that they related to and communicated with other people. And they had this palpable sense that these technologies were not just changing the world, but changing them. 
And they really wanted to think about that and talk about that and try to understand how these technologies were were changing them. So I started framing the questions of the course in terms of the way that technologies reshape our habits. Uh, for example, with new social media, the way that technologies reshape our habits of communication. Uh, they produce different kinds of patterns of social practice. And because virtue ethics is a way of thinking about ethics or morality as a process of habituation, things that you do repeatedly over time and that therefore begin to alter your patterns of acting in the world. Because virtue ethics is su such a natural fit for that kind of analysis, I started doing uh, some research on using virtue theory as a framework for technology ethics. And I went to a a conference in the Netherlands where there's a, a large body of researchers working on uh, technology ethics. And I presented a paper about using virtue theory, Aristotle in particular, to look at new social media. And the response at that conference was overwhelmingly enthusiastic. At the time, I wasn't the only researcher thinking this way, but there were very few of us applying virtue theory to technology ethics, and yet everyone that I talked to seemed to respond to this model for technology ethics as something that was really promising and worth pursuing. So that was around 2007, and I just dived in head first and, and basically put all of my other research projects on the back burner and started really working through questions about emerging technology ethics through the lens of virtue theory. So you've you've identified in the book and I mentioned in the introduction a number of threads that I think we need to talk about but as I also mentioned in the introduction writing about philosophy and ethics and the virtues itself is a challenge not to mention attempting to translate these concepts which people will often view as abstract or amorphous to a wider audience who do you see as your audience for the book and perhaps you want to talk for a couple of minutes about the challenge of writing in this space for a non-academic audience oh yeah absolutely so you know when 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 i started the book I was thinking about pulling together all of the threads of my of my research, and the book picks up, uh, in in fact, uh, some of the research that I've published previously. But the book also does something that my uh, research hadn't done before, which is really look at these questions from a cross cultural perspective. So bringing in not just the European tradition of virtue ethics that comes out of Aristotle and the Catholic moral tradition, but also looking at Confucian and Buddhist virtue approaches, because technologies do not respect the boundaries of European or Western philosophy. They don't respect the boundaries of language or culture. Technologies affect all of us across networks that are increasingly intertwined. And so I knew that I had to have a somewhat global perspective. So that was an enormous challenge to weave together different, uh, in some ways, irreconcilable uh, cultural approaches to virtue ethics in one book. On top of that, I wanted the book to be readable for uh, 
non-academics uh, or academics who weren't uh, philosophers or moral philosophers. So even though the middle of the book delves into some uh, pretty serious moral philosophy, I didn't write the book to be read by other philosophers. And in, in fact, I expect that'll be my smallest audience, at least in the United States, since a lot of philosophers in the United States still have this bizarre conviction that philosophy of technology is somehow not real philosophy. Um, fortunately, that perception is pretty rare uh, outside of the United States. But um, but the, the people that I really wrote the book for are current and future leaders in the tech community, policymakers, and basically anybody who wants to think about how to live well with the technologies that are shaping our lives and, and the lives of our children and the lives of future generations. So I wanted it to be philosophically rich, not not just a uh, sort of uh, dilettante survey of uh, of the of the territory of, of virtue theory and, and and technology ethics, but but I also wanted it to be readable uh, to basically any educated person who is interested in these kinds of questions. We're chatting with Professor Shannon Valor of Santa Clara University, author of the book Technology and the Virtues on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Shannon, let, let's define a few terms for, for those that uh, aren't familiar with uh, this space. Um, you've already used the word virtues, and I think you've already alluded to its meaning, but perhaps you could give us, and, and recognize, by the way, I should say, this show is on Stanford University Radio. I'm an academic. You're an academic. I'm not telling you to give us an academic's answer, but I am encouraging you uh, uh, however, to go in that direction, if you choose, De define if you would virtues, and then more specifically technonormal virtues, and then I think I'm going to follow up with what it means to live well with them. Sure. So, first of all, virtues are one of the oldest and most universal ethical concepts that humans have. They're central, as I mentioned, to the moral teachings of Aristotle. Confucius and the Buddha, but those are just the three virtue traditions that I delve into in the book. There are many others. David Hume talks about the virtues. Nietzsche talked about the virtues. Uh, certainly, uh, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, developed uh, the virtue uh, account of ethics. So this is a, a way of thinking about ethics that's very old uh, and that uh, is, is quite broad in its scope. But virtues in general, are excellent traits of personal character. They can be moral or intellectual. Uh, so moral uh, virtues would be things maybe like honesty or courage. Intellectual virtues uh, uh, might be uh, things like um, uh, rationality or um, uh, uh, persistence and, and, and perseverance. So virtues in general, are defined by their ability to promote human flourishing. And in Greek, we, we sometimes refer to this as eudaimonia or happiness, but it doesn't mean happiness in the sense of subjective, personal, good feelings. It means doing well, living well, flourishing in the way that uh, a human being can, in a way that other people in our community might be able to recognize. So human flourishing is the flourishing of the individual and his or her moral community. Um, so what virtues are, are these traits of character that are cultivated over time. We're not born with them, we acquire them through repeated practice, and then we refine them by the use of intelligent judgment. 
So the, the classic moral virtues are things like honesty, justice, wisdom, courage, but there are many others and each tradition has its own list of, of virtues. And a, the opposite of a virtue is a vice. So cowardice is a, is a vice, cruelty is a vice. So we can think of both positive and negative character, character traits that can be acquired through habit and, and practice. So even though we aren't born with virtues or vices, some virtues come easier to some people than others. So some people have a harder time acquiring the virtue of patience than others, for example. Uh, but the point is, is that character is something that's acquired from childhood and throughout adulthood. It doesn't, there isn't a point at which we stop cultivating ourselves. There isn't a point at which our character is fixed and set. And we develop our virtues through a complex mix of habit formation, which basically is produced by repeated practice, moral and civic education, self-reflection, and the imitation of moral experts in our communities. And so let me dive in there because expertise is something we've talked about in the show as well. And again, we're just defining terms. So you use the phrase or the name moral expert uh, in the book, and you advocate that, that we turn to moral experts, if not become them ourselves. And, and we're going to talk about technology integration in a moment. But what is a moral expert? How would one understand what that means? So moral experts aren't saints. They're not people who are morally infallible. They're just those people around us whose character is well-developed enough that we can learn from watching them and admiring their example. And I think almost everyone has had a few people in their lives like that. These are people who taught us something about honesty or about courage or about kindness, uh, not by telling us about those virtues, but by being those things in ways that we could plainly see in their actions, actions that maybe we know we would have been too cowardly or too weak or too mean to perform in the same situation. So moral experts are people in our community that can help to plant moral ambition in us, um, that inspire us to form the desire to be better and to do better. And they can also show us an initial image of what that might look like in practice in particular contexts, although eventually People have to start figuring that out for themselves. So moral experts are the people who sort of prompt us to cultivate ourselves and give us some initial guidance uh, and direction in that process. But briefly, let me come back to uh, something you asked earlier that I, I didn't uh, uh, fully explain. And, mm -hmm. and that's the with respect to the concept of the virtues, right. the the concept that I define in the book of a techno-moral virtue right. is something that uh, is, is distinctive about the book. And what I mean by the techno-moral virtues uh, in the book is the adaptation of classical moral virtues like honesty and justice to the unique needs of the present, where the future of humanity largely depends on whether we can develop the specific moral skills and capacities and habits that we need in order to employ our rapidly growing technological powers more wisely than we do now. There really is nothing that will impact the future of human flourishing more today than 
either the failure to cultivate or the success in cultivating wisdom in the application of what I can call techno-scientific power, the power of new science and technology. If we don't do that, the chances for human flourishing, even potentially the chances for the survival of this species are seriously diminished. So we need to think about what would be the character traits, what would be the moral skills, what would be the moral habits that would help us manage our emerging technologies more wisely than we do now? What would that look like? So let me give you just two examples. Yes. If you look at honesty, okay, so honesty is a classic virtue. It has to do with telling the truth, respecting the truth. But what would techno-moral honesty be? Well, it would be a capacity to respect truth and the moral skills to respect truth in a global information environment that is more chaotic and more vast than in any time before the digital revolution. The old habits and the old skills of truth-seeking people don't work like they used to in this environment, right? The skills of an honest person in the 18th century, the skills of a person who understands concepts like evidence and authority and knows how to reason well in an information environment in the 9th century or the 16th century, those skills aren't exactly the same as the ones we need in order to identify and respect truth today. Likewise, if you look at a virtue like justice, um, justice is, among other things, about uh, having the skill to identify and, and rightly distribute uh, benefits and harms among among people uh, to to figure out who deserves what. So if you think about Athens in Aristotle's day, knowing how to rightly distribute the goods of Athens among its citizens in Aristotle's day wouldn't have been easy for a lawmaker. But it was a lot easier than figuring out what a just distribution of the benefits and harms of technology would look like today. Today, we're dealing with technologies on global and intergenerational scales, technologies and practices of technology that can impose grave risks and harms on people 10,000 miles away or 10 generations in the future. So knowing how to be just, knowing what justice looks like in the distribution of technological powers and technological risks and benefits today requires different skills than justice would have required of a person in the fourth century BC. So my book is partly about thinking about what are the virtues that will help us manage the challenges that we face here and now today, not in Aristotle's time, not in Confucius's time, not in the Buddha's time. The, um, in your introduction, uh, you refer to the meaningful questions um, as being which technology shall we create? And that's a quote. With what knowledge and designs affording what, shared with whom, for whose benefit, and to what greater ends? Um, and you refer to those as the larger questions driving the book. Uh, but you also then say in the next sentence, yet humans lacking the technomoral habits and virtues described within its pages could, I think, never hope to answer them. Um, and so 
I, I mentioned this in the introduction, and before we kind of get into uh, some of the, the thinking and suggestions that you offer, um, where do you f- put the book in current literature involving uh, new technologies? And, and again, you know, the listeners to Hearsay Culture are very familiar with the range of perspectives that are offered in books. Uh, but I'm curious if you feel that you are advancing a particular perspective with regard to technologies or are you more comfortable framing the book as a contribution to as i mentioned in introduction how to think about new technologies without normatively deciding the questions of good or bad sure no that's a great question and in in the book even though i talk a lot about moral philosophy in the book i also talk about a lot of the contemporary literature about emerging technologies. So I talk about uh, Nicholas Carr and Evgeny Morozov and Jaron Lanier and David Brin and Clay Shirky and a lot of different perspectives about emerging technologies. And I would say that I would characterize the narrative in, in my book as one that's trying to promote what I would call a middle way in that discourse. And, and I use that term because... That's, in fact, what is typical of virtue theoretical accounts generally, is seeking the middle way between extremes. So part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to push back against two extremes. One extreme is what I would call the narrative of techno-optimism and, uh, to borrow uh, Morozov's term, techno-solutionism, the idea that all social and moral problems have uh, merely technical solutions the idea that technology somehow uh, by magic always makes things better, never makes things worse, um, and that um, the future of human flourishing will be decided by technological advances, uh, not specifically uh, by human choices, but by uh, developments that happen outside of human control. So, so that narrative I want to push against, the, the narrative that suggests that technologies will uh, magically uh, arrange themselves in such a way that we will live better. I also want to push against the narrative at the opposite extreme, the techno-pessimism that tends to view all new technologies through a lens of intense suspicion, that tends to um, focus only on the negative impacts of emerging technologies, missing the ways in which they enrich our lives, the ways in which they open up new moral possibilities. So I say in the introduction of the book that there is no such thing as humanity without technology. Technology is not a new feature of human society. Technologies, as, as any scholar in this field knows, um, are uh, part of our history all the way back to uh, our creation of stone tools. And, and possibly, if you think about language as a technology, um, we, can, we can think about technologies as being part of what made us human in the first place. So, given that that's the case, That's why I said what I said in that passage from the introduction that you read. The question is not, do we go forward with technology or not? The question is, which technologies shall we go forward with? Who and with what wisdom 
will uh, design those technologies? And what will be the aims or the goods that those technologies will be designed to promote? And if we don't get the answers to those questions right, there's very little chance that humanity 100, 500, 1,000 years from now will be doing better than it is today. But I'm optimistic in general that the future of human flourishing lies with technology, not without it or against it. We're chatting with Professor Shannon Valor of Santa Clara University, author of the forthcoming book, actually released today on the show's air date, September 9, 2016, Technology and the Virtues, on KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. For those of you that listen to Hearsay Culture regularly, you know that it's on KZSU, which is a non-profit, non-commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to make a donation to KZSU. You you can email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or go to our webpage and click on donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, uh, I hope you continue to keep listening to the show. So, so Shannon, you've alluded to it a little bit, but let, let's get um, let's get down to uh, some uh, perhaps a couple of concrete examples of your concern and action. Uh, you know, we often read, uh, you know, and you've alluded to it a little bit. We often read read about uh, robot overlords, or we read about uh, utopianism, um, and as you pointed out, neither of those examples are necessarily where we're going to wind up, and perhaps both um, go a little too far away from where we might be. Um, when you think about the kinds of questions that we are and will be facing, um, can you give us a couple of examples, perhaps, of a kind of scenario that you feel that, as of now, uh, we lack the technonormal virtues to be able to make adequate decisions of? And perhaps, do you have an example of a situation uh, where uh, you think that we, uh, right now, should be trying to use these values before we get into some of the details of that system as you describe it? Sure, absolutely. So uh, the first thing I would want to say is that it's important to recognize that these questions really aren't philosophical abstractions. They, they really deal with questions that are as concrete as you can get. So, for example, what's more concrete than uh, what happens to you when an armed robot decides by means of a predictive algorithm whether you're a violent threat to be neutralized or an innocent bystander? What's more concrete than the question of whether your every movement and utterance in public and private is recorded and made available to anyone who's willing to pay? What's, what's a more concrete question than whether you will be allowed to create a child whose mind or body is enhanced with non-human DNA? So the first thing is to, is to point out that these are, are questions that are about um, very, um, uh, very concrete, very uh, present realities that we are going to have to confront very, very shortly. So this is why I think that talk about robot overlords or super intelligent AI, I think can be unhelpful and a bit of a distraction from some of the bigger, nearer risks that are really already facing us. So we are nowhere near being able to create AI with the kind of general intelligence that humans have. Now, I'm not going to say that this is something we can rule out as uh, impossible in principle in some distant future, but 
the point is, is that we already have a lot of AI agents that even though they're not intelligent in the ways that humans are, they're incredibly smart in very narrow, specific ways, by which I mean that they can perform tasks that intelligent humans normally do. And this kind of AI can already do a lot of good in the world, and it can already do a lot of damage. So these are the issues that we need to get a handle on right now. The benefits and risks of AI, for example, that isn't super intelligent or even really intelligent at all, just very good at doing things that only humans used to do and that can do them much faster than humans do them. So, for example, the implications for what we call technological unemployment here are immense, right? The, the risk of a new wave of automation that will affect both blue-collar and white-collar jobs. Uh, the Oxford Martin School produced uh, a report in 2013 uh, that uh, shocked a lot of people, working with relatively conservative assumptions about the power of automation they predicted that uh, upwards of you know, 40 to uh, 47 percent of jobs in the U.S. could be at risk of being lost to automation in, within a few decades. So uh, these are questions that we need to address now. What kind of impacts socially and, uh, and economically do we need to anticipate from new technologies? And how do we handle these in ways that are just uh, that uh, that address uh, the uh, impacts of those on human beings. Uh, we also have to think about uh, things with respect to, and I'll focus for now just on AI and robotics. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to think about things like uh, the tendency of humans to over-rely on these systems and to attribute to them more intelligence than they actually have. So there's a well-known phenomenon called automation bias, uh, that has been documented for decades that has, in some cases, led to disasters that, uh, that cause great loss of life. Humans are inclined to attribute to robotic and artificially intelligent systems um, capacities that are far beyond what the systems are actually capable of. And this can cause immense problems. We also have, with machine learning technologies, the reality that these systems are intrinsically unpredictable in their behavior, even for their programmers. So these are what we call complex adaptive systems in many cases that can produce emergent behavior that cannot be predicted in advance. And even if you have a system that statistically is more reliable than a human performing the same task, right? So the error rate might be lower than the error rate of a human performing a task. That doesn't mean that the system is predictable because in that, the, in that error range where the computer does something that wasn't predicted, we often have no idea what the error is going to look like. When a human makes a mistake, you can kind of predict what kind of mistake they're going to make and you can put some systems in place to protect against the human error. When machine learning systems make mistakes, or rather, I should say, do things that we didn't anticipate. They do things that are, from a human standpoint, inexplicable often. And that makes it more difficult to put systems in place to protect us from those kinds of failures. So these are the kinds of things that we need new 
cognitive skills, new moral skills to anticipate. And I think that we have to uh, consider um, both the positive and the negative potentials of these technologies. Today, we tend to focus, as I mentioned earlier, either almost exclusively on the negative impacts, or if you're on the techno-optimist side of things, you focus almost exclusively on the positive impacts. So when we talk about something like big data, people either think about it as our salvation or they think about it as our doom. But big data can be a boon for virtuous uses of technology. If we think about uh, the use, for example, of IBM's Watson for cancer treatment, uh, I think recently there was a, a case in Japan reported where Watson corrected uh, a misdiagnosis by human doctors of a patient's form of cancer and its appropriate treatment hmm. and had a life-saving result. Hmm. Um, we can also think about the way that Google and Microsoft's translation software uh, relies on the power of big data uh, and makes it easier for people of different languages to understand each other in real time. These are immense uh, values uh, and and can promote human flourishing in ways that was simply impossible to do before. But that's only if we implement these technologies with moral intelligence. And what we see right now is that a lot of these technologies are being used in every way imaginable and often without care, without restraint, without justice, without wisdom. So we've seen, for example, predictive algorithms trained on large data sets generated by humans that have hidden racial and gender biases that can skew practices like the sentencing and probation recommendations of judges that those algorithms are being used to guide. And we probably are already uh, having impacts on the justice of hiring and lending decisions as a result of these kinds of uh, biases in predictive algorithms as well. Or if you think about um, earlier this year, it was a case where Danish researchers irresponsibly made public large volumes of OkCupid user data right. in ways that violated people's privacy, exposed them to grave personal harms, and there are a litany of other examples. So data ethics is an exploding new, new field, one that needs to develop its own habits, its own skills of moral practice. So just like medical patient data has gradually become better and better protected, by institutional norms and laws like HIPAA, as well as better moral habits by physicians and nurses who learn how to protect patient data. We need new practices in big data research and industry that'll provide similar kinds of protections while still enabling the use of big data to promote important human goods. We're chatting with Professor Shannon Valor on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture, author of the new book, Technology and the Virtues. Um, Shannon, we are, uh, and I'm, I'm, uh, it's unfortunate to say this, uh, we only have about 15 or 16 minutes left um, on the show. This is where I start getting to what I call the unfair portion of the show, where I start mm -hmm. asking questions of my guests that they may not have time to answer, although I think you'll have time for this one. Um, throughout the book, and I want listeners to be clear about about this you're writing about these very broad societal concerns about integration of technology and virtues however the virtues that you describe are individual in nature in other words you're not asking as I, I think you're not asking as much for society to inculcate these virtues as you are really I think calling on individuals right who want to be or 
or behave in a way of moral experts um, to be, and I want to ask what you mean by this term and what philosophy you mean by this term, to be excellent in their own personal practices. So how do personal practices from a virtuous perspective, and here I am drawing on the extensive background uh, in the field that you write about, how do personal practices, in your view, help us think through how to live well when societies are foisted on us as a society as opposed to an individual? Well, I would say this. Um, I think in my book, I try to suggest that we shouldn't think of moral virtues as individual or social, as if these were mutually exclusive. Okay. So virtue theorists tend to see individuals not in the way that you know traditional uh, liberal European philosophies have framed the individual as sort of isolated agents. Virtue theorists are more inclined to see individuals as people embedded in communities that help to define them. So there really is no way to develop individual virtues in isolation from the norms of your society. Mm -hmm. And that partly has to do with what we were talking about earlier with respect to uh, moral experts and moral examples. And that's part of your question about what it means to be an excellent human being. Mm -hmm. there, there isn't a way to define this in abstraction from what society you're living in, what problems your society is facing, and uh, what you're contributing to your society. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that emerging technologies have created a whole host of new problems that cannot be solved by individuals. They can only be solved through coordinated, intelligent action by groups of humans, and in many cases, groups that span traditional, national, cultural uh, boundaries. So these are situations that humans have really not encountered before. It's really only in the last hundred years that humans have been able to affect, for example, the viability of human life on the planet through their technologies, whether we're talking about nuclear uh, risks to humanity, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about the acidification of the oceans. Humans have only recently been able to affect large global systems in this way that can have impacts on the entire planet and, as I mentioned earlier, on many generations in the future. There is no way for an individual to tackle a problem like that. So I want to emphasize in the book that we do need, we absolutely do need social and uh, collective manifestations of virtue, because we have to be able to integrate our individual moral skills into collective decision making. So that's why in the book, I talk a lot about virtues like justice that have a social dimension, and also uh, virtues like uh, civility, which I define in the book, not as a kind of just, you know, politeness or um, ability to live and let live, uh, but actually the ability to work with other people constructively to solve 
problems that go well beyond a human uh, in the scale of a human individual or even a small local group or family. So we need individual virtues that will allow us to build with other people a more virtuous society. So I see these things as interwoven. What I would add to this is that uh, we absolutely have to think about um, the way in which moral ambition needs to become a part of this. So what's wonderful about the virtue traditions of the past and the virtue theorists today who've revived those teachings is that they offer a compelling counter narrative to the narrative that we see most often in society today, which is a deeply cynical one. Uh, today, you know, we tend to view all established authorities with suspicion, often for good reason. And we see everywhere the amoral logic of neoliberal philosophies that, uh, that try to tell us that life is just the chaotic movement of narrow individual self-interest and greed. And the virtue traditions of the past have always offered a, a different story, and I think a far more accurate and persuasive story. And I think what I try to emphasize in the book is that one of the things our society needs to revive if we're to have any hope of surviving and flourishing together and not tearing our world apart is a, is a renewed and robust collective sense of moral ambition. And that's a sincere striving to improve ourselves as humans individually and collectively. Um, and this is a process that happens slowly, but it also happens with the help of self-reflection and critical insight from others. And it's not like this um, ambition in society has ever been all that widespread, but in various times and places, it is a cultural presence. Um, and, and I think you can even see it sometimes uh, today in little odd places like Twitter, where you see a lot of people coming together, uh, not always effectively, but, but, but I think sincerely, to express moral outrage. Uh, so people sort of coming together and, and you'll see often people will respond to someone's outrageous or cruel conduct uh, on Twitter with, with a simple remark like, be better. So I think there is this sense that people have that we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard of excellence than where we are now. So to become excellent is to become the kind of person that others would be correct to love and admire, someone with the kind of personal character that any decent person would be proud to see in their own adult child. So when I, when I teach these concepts, I, I talk to my students, I say, look, a successful sociopath who has profited handsomely <laughs> from causing suffering to others may be able to buy their parents a large house, but the parents of that person are not likely to be filled with joy when they think about the kind of human being that they brought into the world unless they too are morally bankrupt or you know, deceived by this person about the kind of individual that they are. And if you think about science fiction, so many sci-fi narratives like Star Trek in the 20th century were a cultural expression of humans envisioning after decades of war and destruction, envisioning what it might look like to have a society that had looked into the void of humanity's self-destruction and made a joint effort to be better, to do better. Not perfect, not saintly, just better. So that's woven throughout Roddenberry's narratives, right? So contrast that kind of story with today's apocalyptic narratives. Think about The Walking Dead or any number of other things mm -hmm. that just involve humanity wandering through the ashes of everything that we've built, that we've destroyed 
and trying to start again from nothing, but with no new moral resources or wisdom to do any better than we did before. So I, I like to sort of pose the question, which future would you rather live through? Which future would you rather aspire to? The one that imagines uh, an apocalyptic scenario where we have to start again from nothing, or a future that results from a collective ambition to do better than we have done before. So which future would any reasonable, thoughtful, or good person choose, not just for themselves, but for their children? The, uh, of course, you know, of course, you know, the reasonable answer to your question, uh, Shannon, is, of course, this, the latter. Um, and yet, right, throughout the book, as you work through these issues, and I appreciate that merging of the individual and societal interest, you know, you, you refer to, you know, what kinds of demands we as humans could make on those that are creating technologies, right? Because, of course, mm -hmm. those are human beings also. So, sure. for example, you know, you, you, you suggest that perhaps we could, and this is your phrase, you know, demand useful tools that do not debilitate us. Um, again, we have about eight minutes left, and I have a couple of questions. But let me ask you this question from the perspective of, let's say, the, you know, the technology skeptic. All right, mm -hmm. we're recording the show on August 29th. We're you know just entering now into the fall of a political uh, presidential election season that that I think you know m most people are increasingly who are paying attention would agree has not been a shining example of democracy and discourse at its finest. Um, in other words, right, it seems that if one values evidence and reason and logic and, you know, dispassionate understanding of facts uh, as values or virtues that we could use to create policy and elect a president, we seem to be straying from that, uh, at least at least broadly. Um, given the charge that you make really, you know, to all of us as a society, um, how confident are you that we have the systems in place and ultimately as a society, the capacity to take on the challenges as you describe them? In other words, you know, we're, we're, we're chatting here as Uber has recently announced that it's going to just pretty much autonomously, for the most part, have decided that Pittsburgh would be a good place to test driverless cars. Um, whatever, whatever limited process there was for making that decision, it's quite clear that there wasn't a public discussion or debate as to whether that would be a good idea. We have left it largely to technology's creators to make those decisions for us. Do you think that we have the capacity right now, right? And I'm not, I'm not asking you to pull out a crystal ball, although obviously it sounds like it, I am. Um, do we have the capacity to take on what, 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 what is a clear call, at least in my mind, for us to do a heck of a lot better than we've done up to now? I mean, you're not calling, in other words, for incremental changes. I think these are wholesale changes in how we think about tech. What's your response to that characterization and to our capacity to handle this? Well, I think it depends on what we mean by capacity. Um, what I would say is, do I think we have the capacity now to act with the sort of uh, techno-moral wisdom that I'm describing in the book? Absolutely not. Uh, I, th I think it's clear that we don't. 
Um, do we have the potential to build that capacity? Is it possible for us to build that capacity? Absolutely. Will we build that capacity? I don't know, but I do know that we're in big trouble individually and collectively and as a species if we don't. So if you ask me what I think is the likelihood of there being a, a sincere and widespread revival of interest in the moral improvement of not just individuals but institutions and the rededication of uh, these institutions to, uh, to human flourishing. If you ask me what I think the chances of that uh, actually happening are, I would say that uh, they aren't overwhelmingly good. Uh, do I think that it's hopeless? Absolutely not. And so if, if you're thinking about a scenario where, just to throw random numbers at it, there's a 70% chance of failure, but failure means the loss of uh, a planet or a society that allows uh, life to be worth living. If, if that's what failure means, it doesn't really matter that there's a 70% chance of failure and only a 30% chance of success. The alternative is unthinkable, right? Failure is unthinkable. So you'd better devote all your resources to trying to make that 30% chance of success become the eventuality. So that's really the argument in my book. It's not that I'm suggesting that there's a great deal of uh, cause for optimism. It just seems clear to me that uh, the alternative, which is resignation to the status quo, is unthinkable. But I agree that uh, the political situation is really uh, right now uh, the biggest obstacle to, uh, to things changing. And, and I don't think that isolated individuals can have much of an effect except by means of pushing for an improvement of our political institutions. So right now we have political leaders and policymakers uh, that have the wrong sorts of motivations. And, and even when they do have the right sorts of motivations are often not well informed about new technologies or about wise technology policy. For, for a variety of reasons. Um, and so these are, these are tough problems. These, these problems with emerging technologies are what ethicists like to call wicked problems. They don't have quick, easy answers, and they require a great deal of wisdom and intellectual and moral virtue uh, to develop really thoughtful policies in response to. And frankly, our current political climate of gridlock and division makes it impossible to even make good policy when it comes to the easy questions, mm -hmm. like whether better gun legislation would save lives or whether the CDC needs more funding to fight infectious diseases like Zika right. or whether effective measures to mitigate the effects of climate change should be adopted. So it, we absolutely would need a, a, a large political shift before much will change. And unfortunately, Right now, we have a would-be despot like Trump who's exploiting the public sense that we need a big shake-up in the political culture. And we have a dearth of people who are offering genuinely wise leadership in the public interest. So un until there is uh, a revival, I think, of political optimism um, and, uh, and uh, political virtue, it, it's, uh, it, the chances of things turning around uh, are are small, so I, I would hope that that's where 
the, uh, the change could begin with people uh, trying to identify leaders that can genuinely help us find our way out of the woods. Professor Shannon Valor, author of the book, released today as the show airs on KZSU, September 9, 2016, Technology and the Virtues, uh, focusing on a philosophical guide to a future worth wanting from Oxford University Press. Um, I, you know, I rarely uh, will will say something like this on air because, uh, as, as my listeners know, um, I am picking the guests on the show based upon work that I think is important. But I'll say that I think this book, Shannon, is one of the most important contributions to our understanding of how to integrate these technologies of the last few years. Um, and uh, particularly as you address uh, several times in the book the reticence for uh, a bottom-line oriented innovators uh, to take seriously uh, focus on ethics and philosophy. I, I share your interest in seeing that, that we as a society take a closer look at how ethics and virtue can be integrated in a way um, that can prevent these harms, but more importantly, as you said, can can you know, cause us to leave, lead, as you said, a life uh, worth living. And uh, you have sold me, uh, although clearly I was I was certainly very interested in any way. You've sold me on the uh, notion that this is something worth exploring far beyond uh, the traditional audiences uh, for a book on philosophy and virtue. So thank you for this contribution. Thank you for joining us today on Hearsay Culture to educate my listeners. And uh, I absolutely invite you back uh, in the future as we go forward, um, not only with future projects that you have, but also to continue this discussion. Thank you much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. Thank you for having me on the show. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. So this show is unusual in the sense that we are actually, I'm actually airing the show during a time when KZSU is close to or in its interim period, meaning I am still finalizing the schedule uh, for the fall on KZSU. So I will simply say this, uh, this quarter you've been able to listen to Hearsay Culture Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific time on KZSU. You can remain and still get the show uh, by podcast at all of the current uh, popular podcast apps as well as iTunes and and Stanford CIS's webpage. Uh, you can send me feedback, comments, criticisms uh, by emailing me at David Hearsay Culture or by clicking the contact link on hearsayculture.com. I'm very excited about this fall's upcoming guests. I'm going to save uh, announcing those guests uh, for a few weeks until I finalize the exact air dates, but there's some terrific people coming on. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion. So uh, please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming and have a great day.